So once again, we're in the book of Colossians, starting in chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human traditions, according to elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and has put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sonia. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Spencer Adams. I get to be pastor of Missional Living for Church of the City. And I want to begin our time this morning with just a short little story. Um, when I was in university, I had the opportunity to do a little bit of traveling. I'm not, you know, one of those people that's traveled all over the place, but I did one really great trip when I was in university. And towards the end of that, I had the opportunity to spend a few days in Istanbul. Uh, in Turkey. Just out of curiosity, has anybody in the room been to Istanbul before? Okay, a few of you. It, you know, again, this makes it seem like I've been all over the world and can say this with authority, but uh, to me it seems like a city unlike any other. It's unique in so many ways, and I was blessed because I was able to stay, myself and a few fellow students were able to stay with a missionary family that I was connected to through a missions organization that my parents worked for at the time. So we got to stay with a missionary there in Istanbul, and he picked us up at the airport when we arrived and drove us over to the Asian side of the city, if you know anything about Istanbul, and we went to uh, his apartment complex, which was sort of in a little bit of a gated community with a few apartment buildings in it. And the next, I think it was the next day, he said, why don't you guys you know, put on your shoes and, and coat, so I wanna show you something. So. We go out, we get into his van, and we drive out of the gates of his little apartment complex there, and we begin to drive down the wall, the wall of the apartment complex on the outside along the road, and then we make a turn, and so we're driving along sort of the side wall outside of uh, this apartment complex that he lives in with these different apartment buildings. And we make this turn, and all of a sudden, it's like we're in a whole different world. I don't know what, how else to describe this little part of the city other than just a, a huge slum almost with people everywhere. If you've ever been to a city in the world that has uh, po pockets like this, you may, might be able to picture what, what I saw that day. People everywhere, dwellings with uh, little dwellings in between and then little dwellings in between those, you know, just how little homes stacked on other homes, kids everywhere, open doors so you could see into people kind of cooking. And, and I was just 
overwhelmed by what I was seeing. Uh, the amount of activity and the poverty there. And it was outside of this apartment building that in some ways, you know, would look like an apartment building, you know, anywhere here in, in southern Ontario and sort of a little cluster of them. But we go outside this gate and we're in a whole new world. And, and I remember him saying as we were driving along there, he said, I just wanted to show you this. He said, I periodically take my, my kids out here and show them this because it's easy for us uh, it's easy for us to forget that this world exists, especially right outside the walls of where we live. Uh, it's easy to pretend that it's not here, but it is. It is here. And I think that we sometimes bring that kind of willful ignorance, if you will, to the idea, the concept of the spiritual realm and spiritual warfare. We live in a modern Western society, and I think we choose often to arrange our lives so that we can ignore this whole thing of the spiritual realm and spiritual warfare. We choose not to think about it, and we kind of arrange our lives so that we can do that the best way. But we're going to talk about it this morning. And uh, as I said, there are probably many of us in what I've sort of what I would call the kind of rejection camp. Either you've explained this whole thing away, this whole, the whole spiritual realm and spiritual warfare, you've kind of explained it in more psychological terms or something as, Western, as we Westerners are, are wont to do at times, or maybe, as I said, you, you just avoid it. You're in sort of that rejection side. But then there are people here in our culture, but plenty of people around the world that are completely on the other side of the spectrum, what you might call the fascination group, where there's this daily interest and interaction with the spiritual realm. Certainly you probably think you can think of other cultures where that's prominent, but in some corners of Christianity that's a reality too. So my point in thinking about these different positions is just to say that I don't think that many of us will approach this concept, this topic, neutrally. If, if you're anything like me, you come to it with a little bit of anxiety. Uh, I already feel like when I talk to people about being a pastor and being a Christian here in the city, I immediately get thought of as superstitious. And so, you know, if I were ever to get into the concept of angels and demons, the, the person would just say, oh, wow, I, I just need, this is the last conversation I'm ever having with Spencer. Like, he's the weird neighbor now. Um, you know, and, and so we avoid it. Uh, but we're going to talk about it this morning and... Uh, as Matt often does, I'm going to invite us now to just take a moment to uh, quiet ourselves, to listen to what God wants to say to us in this moment, whatever we're bringing to this topic or just to this morning, whatever emotions you brought here today. Let's be quiet for a moment, listen, I will pray, and then we'll jump in. Okay. Jesus, in, our, in the world, in the space, the culture that we occupy today, it is very easy for us to go about our daily lives without really thinking about the spiritual realm, angels, demons, spiritual warfare. And so I know I come to this 
concept, this topic with some hesitation, a little bit of anxiety perhaps, and yet uh, I just want to look at it the way that, that you did and interact with these things the way that you did as you walked among us and lived life and did ministry. And so would you help us this morning to see these things the way that you see them? And that we would leave this morning prepared to be uh, salt and light in our community, recognizing the reality of the world we live in and approaching it through uh, the truth and the hope of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If this, as I said, if this is a topic that some of us want to avoid, it's hard when it's included in this prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray. As we've said, probably a prayer that Jesus intended those who were listening to begin to pray on a regular basis. He concludes, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So not only does he include it in his prayer, but he actually concludes the prayer with those lines. So they have a prominent place. So I think we need to do our best to understand this topic. And as I said, some of us are pretty far removed from thinking about the spiritual realm and spiritual warfare, and so it might not actually even be immediately clear to you how those lines in the prayer, lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil, you might not even be certain how those things immediately bring us to a place of thinking about the spiritual realm or spiritual warfare. But I think that it is crucially important for us to wrap our minds around this, for us to be faithful followers of Jesus in the world in which we live. And so we're going to try and do that this morning. Here's where we're headed. Three areas that we're going to journey through together. First is answering that question that I just raised. How do these lines in the Lord's Prayer lead us into thinking about the spiritual realm and spiritual, spiritual warfare? Then we're going to think about, uh, number two, is the scriptural perspective on the spiritual realm and spiritual warfare. What does the Bible have to tell us about these things? And then finally, in light of that, how should we as followers of Jesus respond? How should we live our lives? And if you've done any study on this topic at all, this isn't in my notes, but you'll probably recognize that in a half hour we are barely going to scratch the surface of this. Uh, at a couple, as we go, I'm going to give you a couple of suggestions of additional resources that, that you can go and pursue if you want to learn more about this, but I just want to acknowledge this at the start, that we're going to just scratch the surface, but I hope it's going to be helpful for us nonetheless. So let's start with how this, these lines in the Lord's Prayer, this conclusion, how does it bring us to thinking about spiritual warfare? Jesus uh, begins this last part of the prayer, lead us not into temptation. What is Jesus teaching us to pray here? What is being prayed? Is Jesus teaching us to pray, God, please don't tempt me. Please. You're powerful. I'm not. Please don't tempt me. I don't think so. And I think scripture makes it pretty clear that this isn't one of the options of what what we're praying here. Think about a verse like James 1.13, where it says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. That feels pretty clear. Can we agree? Pretty clear. God does not tempt us. And so Jesus must not be teaching us here to pray, God, please don't tempt me. Is he then teaching us to pray, God, would you just, would you remove temptation altogether from my life? It's no fun. I don't like it. Uh, would you get rid of it? 
We might wish for that to be the case. You know, I think we would all agree, if you're a follower of Jesus, it would be nice not to experience temptation in our daily lives, but I don't think that that's going to happen. I don't think temptation is all of a sudden going to be gone from our lives. And actually, we see at different moments in Scripture that though God does not tempt us, he often will take temptations that we experience and use them to grow and mature us as believers. We see in actually the Gospels, Jesus experiencing temptation in Matthew chapter 4, and that sort of being the commencement of his ministry. And so God will use temptations that we experience. And so I don't think Jesus is teaching us to pray, God, would you just remove temptation altogether from my life? Again, we might wish for that, but I don't think it's going to happen. So then you might be saying, okay, so God doesn't tempt us, you know, but he may sometimes use temptations we experience. So what is sort of the source of our temptation? Where does it come from? Well, a very quick uh, theology lesson for you. There's scripture points to three sources of temptation for us. Very quickly, they are the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Three sources of temptation for us as believers. And let's look at a passage really briefly that brings all of these three things together and shows us all of them at once. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Paul says this. I actually think I've bolded some things there for us. It's maybe a little hard to see on the screen there. but And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. The world, our first source of temptation. The world is those systems and structures that exist in the world that are in opposition to God. Think about something like the consumerism that is such a real part of the society that we live in. We talked a little bit about this a number of weeks ago when we heard from Bashara. This idea that we never have enough. No, you, you don't have enough. You need more and more and more and more. And when you have more, then you'll need more. That's a, that's a structure of the world that's in opposition to God. Or, or think about the sex industry. Certainly, I think we can agree, a a structure, a system in the world that's in opposition to God and his purposes. Paul goes on, uh, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is the devil. We're tempted by the devil and evil forces under his control. And we'll spend more of our time talking about this this morning, so I won't go into too much explanation here. Paul goes on, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is the flesh, the third source of temptation. Those parts of us, it's not, Paul's not talking here, although flesh in scripture does sometimes refer to our actual physical bodies. Here he's talking about those parts of us that aren't yet fully submitted to Christ in his Uh, will and his purposes in the world. So we can be tempted by the world, the flesh, and the devil. So then, if those are our sources of temptation, what is Jesus actually teaching us to pray here? Well, here's what I think he's, he's teaching us to pray. God, would you keep me from those situations, those people, those places that are going to lure me away from you? Would you keep me away from those people, those, those moments, those places, those situations that are going to lure me away from you? It makes me think of uh, a verse in my favorite hymn, Come Thou, Fo- Come Thou Fount. The writer says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. 
probably recognize these words, even if you're here and you're not a believer. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Lead us not into temptation. And then he goes on, but deliver us from evil. I was reflecting this week, and I don't think deliver is a word that we really use that often in this sense. You know, we use it in terms of uh, bringing babies into the world or um, bringing Amazon packages to your door, uh, which be careful, right, because the thieves last year were bad, right? So get a doggy door or something so that the person can put it in because you don't want it to get lost or stolen. Um, But I don't think that's really what's being referenced here. Deliver us from evil. Here, deliver just means rescue. means rescue me, save me. And in that sense... You know, it feels like a bit of a dramatic ending to the prayer, doesn't it? Deliver me from evil, save me, rescue me. And so you kind of, we end up asking the question like, you know, are we ending this prayer in a bit of a, uh, a feeling of fear? Or, you know, are, are we ending in sort of a place of desperation? And I don't, think, I don't think we are. I don't think that that's what Jesus is teaching us. But he is asking us and teaching us to acknowledge that there is a force working against us in the world, and that we ought to daily, regularly pray for rescue. And so to understand better what Jesus is teaching us to pray and what he's, the sort of the backdrop that he is, is alluding to here, uh, we need to understand the scriptural perspective on the spiritual realm. So that's where we're, we're going to go next. What does the Bible have to say on the spiritual realm and spiritual warfare? I said I was going to give you a couple of other uh, resources because, again, we'd only be scratching the surface this morning. A couple of them that I would point you towards, uh, the Bible Project, you've heard Matt and myself and others talk about the Bible Project. They have those amazing videos that you can see on YouTube, but also every time they make one of those videos, they often do a series of uh, online posts or podcasts that where Tim Mackey, who's the primary biblical scholar for the Bible Project, talks about all the research and thinking and uh, study that he did that kind of all got condensed down into, you know, a three or four minute video. And uh, so they did a whole series on spiritual warfare that was part of their uh, preparation for a video series on God and the nature of God. So I would point you towards that. If you were to just go online and look up uh, Bible Project Spiritual Warfare, you'll find that. And Mackey does this beautiful job. If you've ever listened to him talk about some of these things, you, you're just overwhelmed with his understanding of scripture, but he talks about the Old Testament backdrop for the spiritual realm and spiritual warfare. So I'd, I'd point you to that. And then another is uh, a free online course by Dr. Gary Brashears on spiritual warfare. If you, again, if you just search Gary Brashears spiritual warfare, you'll find that. And it's eight or ten parts, and it really exhaustively takes you through this biblical understanding of spiritual warfare. Really excellent. So I'd I'd point you to those two resources, but just condensing things down into four brief points this morning, again, scratching the surface, what does the Bible have to tell us about the spiritual realm? Number one, there are spiritual beings that inhabit the cosmos that are real, personal, and powerful. There are spiritual beings, plural, in other words, not just God, the Yahweh that we worship. 
There are spiritual beings that inhabit the cosmos that are real, personal, and powerful. And note that I use the word cosmos, not a word that we, again, use very often in our world today, I don't think, but I intentionally chose that because in my study, one of the things that I uh, was reading about and thinking about was uh, the world, the universe that we live in, there you go, used to be, we used to refer to it as a cosmos, and, and in that understanding of the cosmos is this recognition that there are all these forces at work, that we are uh, human beings with a finite understanding, that there are things that we don't understand, can't see going on in the world and in the universe around us. But again, I keep using the word universe, and that represents this shift in our modern understanding of the world and the universe. It's hard to, to explain the universe without using the word universe, I'm realizing. Uh, and it's, it, with universe comes this connotation that uh, we should be able to understand everything. You know, we'll observe things, and maybe we don't understand it all now, but eventually we will. We'll get there. And so I intentionally choose the word cosmos because there are things that we don't see and things that as human beings we don't understand. But scripture points to this reality that there are spiritual beings that inhabit the cosmos that are real, personal, and powerful. So what more can we understand about this? Um, well, first of all, in Genesis 1-1, we see that God created everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He is the only eternal being in the cosmos. He's the originator of all of it. He created it all. But then we see in Genesis chapter 3, we're introduced to some beings that are actually in opposition to God. If you've spent time in scripture, you know I'm talking about the serpent that tempts Adam and Eve in the garden. And then we see other spiritual beings popping up throughout scripture that are also in opposition to God. And so I think for all of church history, people have wanted to know, you know, where did, what happened there? You know, so God created everything, you know, the, the earth, the world that we see around us, but he also created these spiritual beings, but then there are some that are in opposition to God. How did that happen? What, you know, what, what went wrong there? And we want to find answers for that. I think that's part of the, as I said, the world that you and I inhabit. We want to be able to explain everything. And I don't think scripture conclusively gives us a description of what happened there. There are people, if you've done some study on this, certain people will point to passages like Isaiah 14 or Ezekiel 28 as giving us uh, an account of what happened. And in my study, I don't think we can say conclusively that that's what those passages are talking about. Some of you are thinking like, what are, what are we talking about right now? And that's okay. Um, I, just for those of you in the room who've, who've read, you know, you know, you've seen somebody say, oh, well, this passage tells us conclusively what happened. I don't think we can say that for sure. Um, I think there are primary meanings of those passages that we, you know, we'll, we'll have to take it at face value, and maybe there's some hidden meaning, but we want to be careful about building theology off of sort of secondary meanings of passages, allegorical things and, and whatnot. Um, so we know that God created everything, but that there are, the, there are these spiritual beings in opposition to God. And, and one, one quick passage before we move on to our next point. Um, it, lest we want to do what we so often want to do in our modern Western world and look back at the Old Testament and kind of read it through our sort of empirical uh, modern lens. And I think what that often entails is saying, well, there's, there were all these, you know, God, other gods worshipped by other nations in the Old Testament and sometimes even by the people of Israel, but those were just carved statues and things like that. Um, you know, there was no real substance to them. 
we're going to put a, I think we have these verses on the screen. I don't think that's what scripture points us to, actually. I think it points us to a much more complicated cosmos that we live in with more things going on than that. One passage that I think illustrates that is Deuteronomy 12, verse 3. This is Moses giving the people of Israel instructions for their life in the promised land. And uh, he says, You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. The NIV says that you shall chop down the idols of their gods. In other words, what I want you to notice here is that Moses is drawing a distinction between the carved image and the God being worshipped. And the Old Testament points to this kind of reality that there are, the Old Testament authors spoke to just throw a couple Hebrew words in there, of many Elohim, what we would in English call lowercase g gods, these spiritual beings um, at work in the world. But that Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, the God, uh, the triune God that you and I worship, was the only true God reigning in power and authority over all of these lesser gods, these lesser beings. Number two, what the scripture teaches us about the spiritual realm. Some of these beings, and we've already talked about this a little bit, are in active and fierce opposition to God and his purposes. And the leader of this group is the devil. Some of these beings are in active and fierce opposition to God and his purposes, and the leader of this group is the devil. One passage where we can see this playing out, and again, before I even read this, for any of you who've done some study in this topic, you'll know that this passage can tend to be a hot-button one where people will use it to try and uh, build a theology of angels and demons, and I think there's a lot that this passage doesn't tell us clearly. I think it tells us a few things clearly, but there's a lot that we just don't know. You're like, just get to the passage already. It's Daniel chapter 10, verses 10 to 14. I'll read it quickly for us. So this is Daniel talking about, if you've read the book of Daniel, you know that periodically he had these visions, and that God would uh, interpret those visions, uh, give him an explanation of them. And he has one, and so then he, he has this vision that he's troubled by, and so he begins to pray, looking for an explanation. And, and then here's what he says happens. Verse 10, And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you, and stand upright, for now I've been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word, word to me, I stood up trembling. Verse 12, then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. Weird. Uh, I think we can acknowledge that. And in in sort of, at least for me, I, I read it and I think, what is going on here? Um, and as I said, um, particularly folks that fall on that fascination side of the spectrum with the spiritual realm will try and draw all kinds of conclusions from this passage that I don't know that we can draw. All I want us to recognize right now is that clearly, there seemed, Daniel seems to be talking about spiritual beings at work in the world, some of, the, some of which are, are uh, 
God is using to do his bidding in the cosmos, and then there are others that are opposing that work. Complicated. And then I, I said as part of this point that the leader of this group is the devil. We see this very we see this at various points, but very clearly at the end of Scripture, Revelation 12, 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So the devil, Satan, is this leader of this group of spiritual beings in fierce opposition to God. Point number three, though, is that none of these beings are a threat to Yahweh. His authority is over all. I mean, we can probably begin to recognize that by the fact that he created all things that exist, right? Including spiritual beings. But scripture doesn't stop there. It gives us very clear and conclusive uh, moments that illustrate for us the power that God has over all other beings, creatures that exist in the cosmos. One really amazing example uh, that gets me excited, one of those passages that it's just, it stirs you up, is Exodus 15, 11 to 12. Again, this is Moses speaking. This is a, a song or a poem that he's composing for the people of Israel after they've uh, left Egypt, they've crossed the Red Sea, and then they've just watched the waters swallow up Pharaoh and his chariots who have been pursuing the Israelites. And they're celebrating, and here is what Moses says. Who is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, Yahweh, among the gods? Lowercase g. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. He's not purely speaking poetically here. He's looking at what's just happened. You stretched out your hands. We walked through the sea on dry land, a miracle, and then you swallowed up the Egyptians who pursued us. Who is like you, Yahweh? Clearly not the gods of the Egyptians, They couldn't save them. Who is like you? There is no God like you. We see that echoed throughout the Old Testament in the Psalms. And then we see this same authority that Yahweh has on display in the life and ministry of Jesus. Mark uh, 1.23. We'll just read a quick moment from the Gospels. This is, as you can recognize, early on in the book of Mark. It says this, And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? You can hear fear and trembling in that, can't you? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. Here's an interesting note for us, friends. This moment is actually the first, this spirit is the first uh, being to proclaim the deity of Christ in the book of Mark. It's interesting, isn't it? The first being that declaims the deity of Christ, that, that Jesus is in fact God. And Jesus makes a simple command, come out of him. And the spirit obeys Jesus has the same authority that Yahweh has, and his authority is over all. 
And then, number four, our fourth point in what Scripture teaches us about the spiritual realm and about spiritual warfare is that through the death and resurrection of Christ, you and I can stand in the authority that Christ has over all other spiritual beings. And here we'll look at our passage that uh, Sonia read for us. If you have a Bible, um, I'd encourage you to open up uh, back to there. It was a, uh, Colossians chapter 2. And we'll just look at a few things from this passage quickly. So through the death and resurrection of Jesus, you and I can stand in the authority that Christ has over all other spiritual beings. How do we see that in this passage? Well, skipping to the end of what Sonia read for us, verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is talking about God the Father through the work of Christ, defeating once and for all, putting to doubt all claims and challenges uh, from these forces at work against him. Yahweh has silenced all challenges through the work of Christ. He is ruler over all. But then if we go back to verse 8 where Sonia started, look what it says. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition or according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. What we see here is that these evil forces at work in the world, though they have been defeated by the work of Christ, they are still fighting. They have not given up. They are still at work in the world. Look at verses 9 and 10. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, Christ. And you have been filled in him who is the head and rule, who is the head of all rule and authority. So the authority that Christ claimed over all of these spiritual powers, you and I are filled with when we follow Jesus. Let's just read that again. For in him, in Jesus, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. That's a good promise, isn't it? It's a good promise. That's a good truth for us to rest in, I think. And then let's look at verses 13 and 14, skipping down a little bit. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Any claim of power or authority that Satan or demons had over us is canceled, is done away with through the work of Christ. We do not belong to that kingdom any longer. When you make Jesus Lord of your life, any claim that Satan or demons has over you is canceled, is destroyed, is done away through the work of Jesus. And so based on these four points, how should we, as followers of Jesus, respond? How should we go about our lives in the world that, in which we live? Well, three things. First of all, um, we need to recognize our vulnerability. We need to recognize our vulnerability. In our own strength, friends, you and I are incredibly vulnerable. 
to the forces at work against us in the world. Otherwise, Peter wouldn't have issued this warning, which if you've read it before, and you're like me, it stuck with you. 1 Peter 5, verse 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. There's an ongoing threat that's being acknowledged there, isn't there? And Peter's saying, you know, we need to be careful. We are vulnerable. And, and actually, remember, what makes it even a little bit worse, the devil has an inside man, that part of us, the flesh, that is still not fully submitted to Christ and his purposes. Martin Luther said it like this in a sermon on uh, the Gospel of John. He said, Satan enjoys the advantage of having as an ally within our own hearts that great piece of Adam who is too lazy by nature, too sluggish, and too tired to engage in a battle like this and always draws us back, thus making it especially hard to fight to the finish. There's an inside man And now you might be thinking, well, we were doing good. Like, we were talking about the authority that Christ had and that we can stand in that, and now you've made me very sad again, Spencer. Um, my, My point in saying this, that we need to recognize our vulnerability, is not meant to cause us fear. Let me give you a small illustration. My son Dallas this summer, this was sort of the summer where he really came to understand that you need to watch out for cars on the street. And if you're a parent here, you can probably remember that window of time where that lesson had to be learned. Because we're in Canada, it, it always happens in the summer because, you know, what else are we going to do in the winter? We stay inside. Uh, we're not worried about cars. Uh, so this summer, we had to help Dallas learn that lesson. And he is uh, uh, the kind of kid, he's got a strong will. I think that's a good way to put it. And so, you know, when he's doing his thing, he wants to keep doing his thing and doesn't always, at least initially, wouldn't always recognize that there was a car coming down the hill on our, on our street. And so that led to a couple of moments where I really had to yell. Uh, has any parent ever been there, when you're, especially when you're in that teaching phase of crossing the road? No one wants to acknowledge that they had to yell. I'm not talking about yelling at your children on a perpetual basis. I'm saying that your child is so occupied in something and they're not realizing that they're in a dangerous situation. And I had to say, Dallas, there's a car. You know, had to shout from the yard or from the front step or something because he hadn't realized what was going on. And so after a few times of that, he got to, he had a little phase where every time a car would start to come down the street, he would get really scared. He'd run off the road and say, dad, there's a, there's a car coming. And so then we had a few weeks where every time that would happen, I'd have to come over and I'd have to, you know, kneel down and say, Dallas, you don't need to be scared of cars, buddy. You just need to be careful. You don't need to be scared. You just need to be careful. And that's the lesson that I think scripture gives us as believers. We're vulnerable, but we don't need to be scared. We just need to recognize that there are forces at work in the world, and by ourselves, we're vulnerable. Now, a quick little note. Again, for those of you who've ever done any studying or reading on this, a question that is often asked is, can a follower of Jesus be demon-possessed? And again, for those of you who are new to this whole topic, you're like, man, we keep, we're in a relatively okay place, and then we go really weird all of a sudden. Um, and the short answer is, I don't believe that that can happen. Uh, I don't believe that a, a, a 
a Christian can be demon-possessed. Now, can a believer give authority that should belong to Christ? All authority belongs to Christ. Should we, can we give authority that should belong to Jesus over to Satan and demons? Yes, I think we can. We can give authority in our lives over to forces that are at work against God and his purposes in the world. But all authority belongs to Christ, and uh, we do not need to fear and so you might be saying, okay, so what, what, what do we do? And that's number two. We trust in the power of the gospel. We trust in the power of the gospel. We recognize that we're vulnerable, but the gospel teaches us that we don't need to be afraid because uh, in Colossians 2.15, as we read, I'll read it again, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's good news, friends. That's good news. And then another passage that says this beautifully is Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise, talking about Jesus, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Friends, we are vulnerable, but Jesus in his love for us, in his compassion, took on our vulnerability in order to defeat the power that Satan has over us. He took away the keys. He took away the keys. And so we place ourselves in the care of Jesus, in the hope of the gospel, in the power of the gospel. And this leads us to number three. Uh, What do we as believers do in light of what the scripture teaches us about the spiritual realm, spiritual warfare? We pray unceasingly. We pray unceasingly. And this brings us, friends, to where we started however many weeks ago. If we can, do I have this on the screen? Uh, the Lord's Prayer, Peter? Can we just read this together, friends, at, at a few minutes from the end of our series on the Lord's Prayer? Let's read it together. Pray then, like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Friends, we need to pray and we need to pray unceasingly. I quoted Martin Luther before. I didn't realize this until studying this week, but much of his instruction, he was certainly a, we think of him as a theologian and reformer, but he was also a pastor. And much of his writing and teaching on prayer focused on the Lord's Prayer and its helpfulness in the, the daily life of the believer. And he actually believed that each part of the Lord's Prayer is a prayer of spiritual warfare. So when we pray, your kingdom come, and I actually talked about this a number of weeks ago when I spoke on that passage. When we pray, your kingdom come, it's a cry of, of treason to the kingdom of this world. We're praying, God, would you break down the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of sin and darkness and death? Would you break in with your kingdom? When we pray, give us this, this day our daily bread, We're praying, God, would you expose the lie that I and the people around me are being told day after day that I need more, that I don't have enough? That's a lie, and would you expose it? Would you bring it into the light? When we pray, forgive me my debts, we're praying, root out that inside man. There's a part of me that is still opposed to 
to your, your will, your purposes in the world. Would you forgive me? I'm turning away from that. I'm repenting from, from those things. Would you, would you bring the gospel to bear on those parts of my life? The whole prayer, friends, we can think of as a prayer of spiritual warfare. And Jesus instructed us to pray it regularly. As we've been saying over these last number of weeks, we should be praying this every day, multiple times a day. Because we are weak, but he is strong. Now we're almost done, but I want to um, just uh, acknowledge some things that have been happening in uh, our family of churches. Some of you will have seen this online perhaps through uh, posts by, by different uh, people. Matt was posting a little bit about this, but uh, we are part of the Soma family of churches, and uh, we went, early on in the year, we went through an adoption process to be uh, affirmed as, as a Soma church, and uh, so Soma is a family of churches that really wants to focus on equipping people to be disciples, followers of Jesus in everyday life, and, and most, if not all, churches in the Soma family do that through some form of missional community life. People joining together as family, uh, being missionaries sent out into their cities, and, and so we as a church, or at least as, as leaders, I can say, derive great encouragement from the Soma family and from knowing that there are people all over North America in the world figuring out, okay, how do we equip people to follow Jesus in the everyday stuff of life. And one of the churches that uh, pioneered this was really the founding church for, for the Soma family uh, just lost their lead pastor uh, who, who took his own life about a week ago. And so the, the Soma family um, of churches, you may or may not know, over the last week has has been um, grieving the loss of, of this leader. His name was Randy. And uh, Duke Rivard, who some of you had the opportunity to meet back in the spring uh, when he was here with us, he's the executive director of the Soma family of churches. And, and he uh, posted an update a couple of weeks ago and acknowledged that in the time since uh, Randy's death, people all over the, the Soma family of churches have felt themselves in a spiritual war have been having uh, dreams or been feeling uh, condemnation or waves of guilt over what happened to Randy because so many people knew him and did ministry alongside of him. And I, I want to say this because uh, or I, I thought about whether I wanted to, to talk about this with you this morning, but I thought it was important. A, because we are a part of this family and we need to be in prayer for this church. They're called Soma Tacoma in Washington State. So we need to be in prayer for them and the, the days ahead for Randy's family. But also I, I want us to just recognize that, that we're in a war, friends. Uh, there's a spiritual battle raging in the world around us. We have no need to fear because of the power of the gospel, the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Um, but we need to recognize that there are things going on that we don't see, that we may not understand, and we need to pray. We need to pray. Uh, if, I hope if this, these last number of weeks have instilled anything in you, it's this need for us, as Cam just said uh, minutes ago, our need for us, if, if we're going to accomplish anything, uh, if we're going to see the gospel transform us, see it transform our city, we need to be casting ourselves on God, inviting the Spirit to be at work in our midst, and praying, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Uh, so let's be in prayer, and I would encourage you, um, 
as we're going to sing, I'm going to invite the, the, our music team up. Uh, as we sing, maybe you've been experiencing things this week or in recent months in your life where you have felt like uh, you've been under attack or there's been lies that have been swirling around in your head. Um, my encouragement to you would not be to leave afraid uh, because of those things. Um, my hope is that you'll recognize that the authority that Christ has is greater than whatever is going on. And so my encouragement would be if you've been experiencing those things, come to the front and we would love, I would love to pray with you. There will be some other folks up here that can pray together with you. But um, let's not take these things lightly. Let's cast ourselves into the power that Christ has over sin, darkness, and death. Let's pray together. Jesus, we, I repent of the fact that I so often conclude my prayers with, in Jesus' name, as simply um, a way of just closing the book, uh, instead of recognizing that it's because of the work that you've done, Jesus, it's through your name that we have life, as we read this morning. We were dead, and we now have life, and all of our hope is in you. There are forces at work against you and your purposes in the world, but because of what you've done, Jesus, triumphing over them through your death and resurrection, we need not fear. Would we stand firm day by day in the power of your name? Would we be a people of prayer, casting ourselves on you? I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.